change is going to come. Things are playing for change band. We hear it's a solution to balance, as well as our guest today, Dr. Brian Clarity, also believe a change is going to come. Why? Because those of us who believe in fairness, justice, righteousness, and solving conflict without violence are not going to stop fighting for a better America until change does come. Welcome, friends. You are listening to WFMP 106.5 FM Radio. We are Solutions to Violence, a program of and sponsored by WFMP Radio. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. And our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Clarity. Brian Clarity received his PhD in history from the Southern Illinois University at Carbondale in 1999. Dr. Clarity now teaches in the Department of History at Murray State University. He is author of two books, The Management of Dissent and A Testament of Grace, Sermons and Reflection. Brian Clarity has published numerous articles, including, quote, Impeaching Richard Nixon and Tennessee Congressman Ed Jones, Watergate and the Politics of Triangulation, 1973 to 1974. Also, a fear and loathing of detente, perspectives on criticism of Henry Kissinger in The New Republic and The National Review. Brian Clarity has published numerous articles, including Destructing a Theology of Defiance, Black Preaching, and the Politics of Racial Identity, published in the New Journal of Church and State. So, Dr. Brian Clarity, welcome to Solutions of Violence. Thank you for having me. So, Brian, clearly, let's start with the issues concerning race, a topic that white conservatives often do not want to discuss, but we here at Solutions to Balance believe must be discussed if our representative democracy is to be sustainable. You penned an article that was published in the Journal of Church and State titled Deconstructing a Theology of Defiance, Black Preaching, and Politics of Racial Identity, end quote. Tell us about that article. What's the point? I wrote that article around 2008, roughly around the time of the criticisms of Jeremiah Wright in Chicago during the candidacy of Barack Obama for the presidency. I was a member of that very church, Trinity United Church of Christ. Jeremiah Wright was my pastor. And I I wrote the piece and did the research on the piece to give academicians and lay people sort of an entree as to the context behind uh, Dr. Wright's sermons and why they were so fiery, why they were so controversial, that there's a unique history to Black preaching and that a lot of it is overtly political and a lot of it is a stinging critique of the society. Without that context, you would think that he's just some radical, fiery traitor of some sort when really he is expressing the best form of, of, of patriotism, that being, of course, dissent couched in theology. So that's the piece was was to explain not just Dr. Wright, but also some of the uh, speeches of Martin Luther King, which were similarly controversial, especially when King opposed the war in Vietnam and criticized the Johnson administration over issues of poverty. So I, that was an explanatory type of piece. And um uh, a lot of people said that they liked the article, and I was quite pleased with it. And so that was my meager contribution to that larger conversation. Okay. So you are an African-American male history professor at Murray State University, a university in southwest 
Kentucky. The city of Murray is located in Callaway County. Mm -hmm. The 2020 U.S. Census tells us that the population of Callaway County is less than 38,000 people, and about 94% of that population is white and less than 4% black. What's the social environment like for an African-American history professor at Murray? My history with Murray State goes back a long time. I grew up some 36 miles from Murray in a little town called South Fulton, Tennessee. I grew up there, went to high school there. Actually, I took my first degree in political science from the University of Tennessee at Martin, which was literally 12 miles from my mother's house. And so I'm, I was familiar with the culture of, of Western Kentucky and Southwest Tennessee. Several members of my family had graduated in, with degrees in education from Murray State. Several friends of mine finished degrees in engineering from Murray State University. So I was familiar with that environment. I got my master's from here in 1991. And so when I took the job in 2006, I knew what I was coming back into. I knew I was coming back into an area where there was not that much uh, racial or, or demographic diversity. And I knew that a lot of ideas here were bordering on the conservative. I, I knew that history quite well. So it was not a hard adjustment. Now, if I had grown up in Chicago, grown up in the North and come here for the first time, it would have been culture shock, but there was no culture shock in this case. Um, I knew a lot of the people who were on the faculty when I was here as a graduate student. And so I was familiar with the academic, professional, and social environment here. Bordering on the conservative, you're, you're being a little facetious here, but okay. So you, <laughs> <laughs> you teach U.S. history. So I'm wondering, here at the University of Louisville, there is a, a an outstanding Pan-African Studies Department. Does Murray State have a Pan-African Studies Department? Why? Why not? Not at all. I, I have no idea. I know Southern Illinois University of Carbondale does, and it's called Africana Studies. Murray State does not. However, and I just want to make this clear, too, my major area of history is not African-American history. That's not my major area of research. My major area of research is American diplomatic history since 1898 and American political history since Reconstruction, uh, going all the way up through the 1970s. But I did have a joint appointment in the Black Studies Department at SIU Carbondale. I had a joint appointment there and as an instructor in the history department as well when I was working on my PhD. At Murray State, especially in the history department, we try our best to be diverse in our offerings. By that, we teach courses in uh, European history, Asian history, African history, the history of the Indian subcontinent, Latin America, and so forth. So our, our course offerings are very varied. Myself last semester, last year as a matter of fact, I taught a special topics course. The first time I taught one in a long time in African-American history, but it dealt mainly with the political rhetoric of leaders ranging from Fannie Lou Hamer to Booker T. Washington to Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, several of, 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 of those particular writers and, and speakers who spoke to different issues from the end of Reconstruction all the way through the 1980s. Uh, we looked at that political rhetoric, and it was a very exciting course. In fact, the author of the book on Henry McNeil Turner was an old college classmate of mine named uh, Dr. Andre Johnson, 
who teaches at the University of Memphis in the School of Communication, and he's also an ordained minister. So he did a lot of research on Henry McNeil Turner, and we were able to get Dr. Johnson to do a guest appearance uh, in one of our class discussions last spring, and I was quite proud of that. Okay. So you teach U.S. history as well as social and political mm-hmm. protest movement of the 1960s. Yes. So I assume that instruction includes 240 years of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow oppression, the civil rights movement, yes. and the 400 years of institutionalized racism that has yep. existed in the United States. No? You almost have, you almost have to provide that background especially if you're talking about the civil rights movement, whether you're talking about the nonviolent ethic of Martin Luther King, or you're talking about the collective resistance movement of Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party, you almost absolutely have to go back and unpack that history. Okay, that's fine. So are the powers to be at Murray comfortable with your perspective, or have you gotten pushback from Murray? I have not gotten any pushback that I know of. My department colleagues are very supportive. And the administration is very supportive. I've known Dr. Bob Jackson a long time, and he's a very fair dealing man. And I've I've not run into any particular resistance. I might catch a snide remark or two in a couple of papers because I had some students to to review a work by Robert Elder on John C. Calhoun uh, last year. And we know Calhoun was no flaming liberal at all, but I might catch a few snide remarks that they agreed with Calhoun's perspective. By the way, Calhoun supported slavery. I may catch some of that in a paper or two, but other than that, I've I've not run into any type of problems with my own pedagogy or pedagogical delivery. And in fact, I've gotten some good reviews on, on my academic and graduate teaching. Good to know. What about students The students at Murray State are academically curious. They're intellectually curious. They're intellectually engaged. I have had several of them to go on to graduate programs in history, to go into law school, to go into seminary, and so forth. And they've kept in touch with me throughout the years. And they they let me know in in certain terms that they appreciated uh, what I tried to do for them as a professor. Wow. That sounds like uh, you're you're having an impact. That's good to know. So Callaway County, like most Western Kentucky, most of Western Kentucky is politically conservative, as you pointed out, a solid red geopolitical region. The Kentucky core content social studies curriculum does not require public, middle, or high schools to teach Native American or African American history. So how do you explain to those conservative families why it is important for their white children to learn that history? the history of Native American and African-Americans. Because if you're talking about the larger trajectory of United States history, there are certain people you cannot leave out of that conversation, certain events you best not leave out of that conversation, because if you do that, then you get a very jaded, romanticized, and very faulty view of American history. You cannot discuss the settlement of the United States by the English, by the French, and so forth, without talking about the physical displacement of the Native American, and by that I mean practically near genocide of the Native American. You have to talk about the Trail of Tears. You have to talk about wounded knee. You can't have this Roy Rogers romanticization of Native American history, where the Native American is viewed automatically as the villain. There was a reason why the Indian Wars were fought and why the violence was so prevalent. You have to go back and embrace that history, no matter how disturbing it is. 
You cannot talk about the economic and political development of the United States, either the colonial period or the new, the founding early national period, without addressing slavery. You have to talk about the dehumanizing process of slavery, whether it's in the Middle Passage, the seasoning process in the Caribbean, or the atrocities committed right here at home, the economic, social, political, sexual exploitation of African people. You have to have that as part of the conversation, because if you ignore that, or you have this romanticized view that slavery wasn't so bad, and I've heard that more times than I care to count, then you get a very jaded, faulty, and inaccurate view of history. So yes, the uh, the history of the African-American, the history of the Native American, the history of the Asian American, the history of the Irish American, has to be taught and be taught accurately at every level of of education, whether we're talking about elementary school, junior high, or the university system. You cannot sugarcoat the basic facts of history and think that you're going to be teaching it accurately. You won't. You you have to live in a cave somewhere not to know that critical race theory is a hot button issue that has currently sprang up in states across the country. Even though University of Louisville law professor Cedric Powell has explained the critical race theory is a litigative issue taught in law schools and not public schools. That's right. So Dr. Clarity, as you know, groups of conservatives are traveling to public school board meetings and demanding that public schools stop teaching critical race theory. Public school board superintendents like Dr. Marty Polio in Jefferson County explained that they are not teaching critical race theory. These conservative groups continue to make that accusation anyway. So if public schools are not teaching critical race theory, what's the purpose of accusing public schools of teaching critical race theory, CRT? And why I wish I understood that myself, because when you talk about the larger concept of critical race theory, it is a legal construct. You have to go back and look at Derek, the writings of Derek Bell at Harvard. You have to go back and look at Patricia Williams. You have to go back at your basic legal treatises going back to the 1970s. In the 1970s, CRT was introduced into law school in order to best understand legally oppressive systems, whether we're talking about contract rights, property rights, civil rights, voting rights, all that, how race impacts all of those particular systems. Unless you are going to become a civil rights lawyer, you are not going to be exposed to critical race theory. The tragedy behind this entire controversy is that CRT has become politically weaponized, that any attempt to teach accurate history of the United States or even within the larger global context is viewed as something that's detrimental to American students and to race relations. It has been weaponized. It has been distorted. The larger question is, who's benefiting from this? To borrow from the language and going back to Watergate, you mentioned my my work on Watergate. Remember the advice that uh, that Deep Throat or Mark Felt gave to Woodward and Bernstein, follow the money. Somebody is benefiting from weaponizing this issue. It, It may not be a financial benefit. It may be a political benefit. It may be used as um, as a talking point in the campaign. We certainly saw that with the governor-elect Youngkin's campaign, Todd Youngkin's campaign in Virginia. That may be the playbook for this year in the midterm elections or in 2024. It may be used as another political wedge issue. It certainly has galvanized the right and galvanized conservatives 
and it has uh, added to some very harsh, I think, um, discussions at school board meetings. And those things, I'm afraid, are going to escalate. Yeah. In fact, there have been two bills pre-filed by Republicans, Joe Fisher and Matt Luckett, now H.R. 14 and H.R. 18. And they are designed to impede the teaching of African-American and Native American history in our public schools and universities as well. These two bills will also impede the teaching of the history of the LBGDQ community and the women's rights movement. These two bills, if they become law, will give the Kentucky Attorney General the authority to fine school districts $5,000 per day for each day the district is found in violation of the law. The law will also give the Kentucky Standards Board the power to revoke teacher certification if the teacher is found in violation of the law. Similar bills have been filed in other states. If public school teachers and university professors are not allowed to teach the history of the Native American and African American communities, what kinds of problems will this cause for people of color? It's not just going to cause problems for people of color. This is a blanket violation of academic freedom at the highest level. The fact that the legislature and members of the legislature feel that they can write bills to prohibit the teaching of accurate history and the history of marginalized people, that is censorship. It is egregious. Teachers' unions need to be up in arms about this. Certainly, I know academicians are in higher education. Politicians from across the political spectrum should view this as an outrage. The fact that legislatures now can write the curriculum that can be taught at the elementary and secondary level is scary. And if this passes, not just in Kentucky, but around the country, it is going to set a horrific precedent for what the state can do insofar as what happens in an academic and intellectual setting. Dr. Clarity, there is a petition that is now circulating. It's called the Zen Petition among university professors. Howard Zen, yes. Yeah, Howard Zen. So you know about it. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. So it states, the Zen Petition states that signatories, people who sign that petition, will teach African-American, Native American history, the history of the LBGDQ, community, and women's rights movement, regardless of what uh, Kentucky state law says. Would you sign the petition? In a heartbeat. I haven't seen it. It hasn't come across my uh, in my email. Maybe it has. I haven't checked it. But if, if, if it pops up in my email, I'll be the first to sign it. And I will state so publicly that I've signed it. Okay. So the Brookings Institute documents that only about one third of the U.S. adult population have a college degree. That means two thirds of the adult population here in the United States have only a high school education or less. Mm -hmm. So if the Native American, African American history is not taught in our middle and high schools, two thirds of the adult population will not know that history. If most Americans do not know that African American history, it will allow those who believe that the majority of African Americans are lazy and suffer from a character flaw. And it will allow those people to perpetuate that myth. Considering the fact, yeah, considering the fact that most Americans do not have a college degree, talk to us about how important it is that Americans learn that African-American history is in their middle and high school classes. I'll go you a step further than that. And it's something that Dr. Wright often stressed in, in our church services. It was part of our litany. 
that African-Americans did not start in slavery. That if you're going to talk about the African-American contribution, you have to go back to the continent itself and some of those empires that are not discussed in most curriculum. By that, talk about Mali, Songha, Kush. Talk about the great uh, Kiswahili states on the east coast of Africa. Talk about people like Queen Nzinga and King Izana, the emperor, the Ethiopian emperor Izana. Talk about how they were engaged geopolitically with their neighbors, how they were involved in trade on the Silk Road, how Christianity itself was not brought to Africa by the 19th century missionary, but that there's always been an African presence, a Christian and Jewish presence on the African continent long before the arrival of the European missionary. There's a great work by Dr. Kane Hope Felder at Howard University called Troubling Biblical Waters and several other great scholars that address that very thing. So you have to start out with the notion and break down the notion that Africa contributed nothing to the larger society. That's the impression people get, but it's not an accurate depiction at all. Civilization itself started on the African continent. Okay, Egypt, we talk about the glories of Egypt. Egypt is in Africa. You cannot sugarcoat, marginalize, or sideline that larger conversation about Africa's place in, in, in the world order. Africa is not a tragic afterthought. It helped to build civilization itself. So we start from that premise. And then we get to what happened with the with the slave trade, the slave trade that first went east when the Arab invaders came into Africa and enslaved some of those folks, especially after those great civilizations and great kingdoms had broken down. There was a slave trade going one way. And then when you start getting into the 14th, 15th, 16th century, then you can start having the conversation about the, the role of the Portuguese, the Spanish, the French, the Dutch, the English, and so forth, and the transatlantic slave trade. In order to justify that slave trade, you had to use different falsehoods to depict the African as something less than human. By that, you had to use sacred texts like the Bible in order to justify slavery. The Hamitic curse in the book of Genesis, which, of course, according to the narrative, Noah's son, uh, Ham, saw his father's nakedness. And I'm not even going to go into what that's all about. That he was cursed and his line was cursed. And therefore, Black folks were relegated to a permanent position of servitude. That was, that was taught in churches, that has been taught in universities, and it was taught in common parlance. And not only that, the, the writings of Paul in the Greek New Testament, which seems to justify slavery and calls upon the slave to be obedient to their masters, no matter how cruel their masters are, and a distortion of Christian religion, Jewish religion, and so forth. We have to talk about that. We have to get into that conversation. And then we can get into the hows, the whys, the purposes of slavery in the United States. And by the way, slavery was a cause of the Civil War, a direct cause of the Civil War, a direct cause of the secession crisis in 1860, and the motivation behind the establishment of the Confederate States of America. If you listen to Vice President Andrews, Alexander Stevens's cornerstone speech, it is based upon, there's a direct reference to white supremacy and the suppression of people of color.
You cannot ignore those history. You cannot ignore it. John Adams was right. President Adams was right. Facts are stubborn things. These things happen. And students need to learn that whether they're going to become an astrophysicist or whether they're going to become a welder. Those things need to be taught at every single level so that we can have an accurate depiction of the historical narrative. Otherwise, you're going to rely on this mythical gone with the wind type of narrative, the lost cause, which is on its face and on the surface, a bald-faced lie. Okay, so that explains why students, both public and university students, need to learn that history. But Dr. Clary, you're, you're a U.S. history professor. What kind mm -hmm. of harm will admitting or whitewashing the teaching of African-American history, Native American history, omitting the teaching of the history of the LBGDQ and women's rights movement mm -hmm. due to the country at large? It will perpetuate the lie if you do not allow that history to be taught. It perpetuates the lie that there are some folks that are inherently superior and others that are inherently inferior. And you mentioned the LBGTQ community. You have to go into that history. You have to go into the history of gay bashing. You have to go into why Stonewall happened the way Stonewall did. And there are some people who come out of that particular movement who were martyrs, so many that I can't, that I can't even name them. One of the most recent, of course, was the lynching of Matthew Shepard in Wyoming. You have to discuss that history. If you're going to talk about the marginalization of women, you have to go even before the Seneca Falls Convention. You have to go back and unpack the fact that there were laws on the books that allowed domestic violence to happen in colonial America. And the fact that women were not allowed to own property that women were not allowed to vote, they were not allowed to sue in the courts, and systematically kept out of those bastions of power and influence. You have to go back and deconstruct that. Because if you don't, you're going to perpetuate a lie. You're going to perpetuate American apartheid. And you're going to give it credence. And you're going to give license to people to enforce that inferiority. So if you don't discuss those histories, you we'll will definitely repeat them. OK, and that will have an impact on the sustainability of our a horrible impact, a horrible impact. It's interesting that we're having this interview and this discussion today on January the 6th. One year ago, our very democracy was imperiled. Our entire system of government, our entire way of life was gravely endangered by people who carried that type of bigotry and who believed those lies about superiority and inferiority. They dropped thousands of people onto the, onto the campus of the United States Capitol, breached the Capitol, desecrated the Capitol, threatened to hang the vice president of the United States, threatened to murder and kill members of Congress to overturn a presidential election, which, by the way, that election yielded the first African-American woman and the first woman vice president generally in American history. What happened on January the 6th was a result of what happens when that, that type of education is missing, that you believe the, the myth of inferiority and that you're willing to act on it, even if it means destroying the society completely. And so, yes, this day, January 6, 2022, we look back on that. And as we look at the causes and the motivations for why that happened, race, 
gender, all of these things have to be part of that larger conversation. What was their sense of privilege in their view that allowed them to carry out those heinous acts on that day? You have to talk about it. You cannot sugarcoat it. You cannot sleep it under the rug. You cannot whitewash it. Okay, so let's get back to these two bills that filed recently in Kentucky. Uh, the two bills filed by the Republicans, Fisher and Lockett, now H.R. 14 and uh, H.R. 18. The bills are designed to impede the teaching of Native American and African-American history. So there are two organizations that have been formed to oppose these two bills. Can you tell us about those two organizations and the, the two bills that are now assigned? I'm not familiar with the organizations that oppose those bills in the House of Representatives. I know that I've been in regular conversations with historians, not just in our department, but across the Commonwealth of Kentucky, that we would use our best efforts to lobby against it. We had a panel discussion, as a matter of fact. I wasn't a part of it, but several colleagues were, and uh, which we talked about how best to oppose this particular piece of legislation. Politically speaking, and just looking at this sheer politics of it, it will most likely pass the, 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 this, the Kentucky House of Representatives, and it will most likely pass the Kentucky State Senate. Uh, Republicans have a, have a majority, a, a huge supermajority in both houses. It will most likely get to Governor Bashir's desk. I know Governor Bashir's heart. I know that he will veto those pieces of legislation. But I suspect that the General Assembly will override the governor's veto. And now, I hope that wouldn't happen, but let's just be honest and real. It will probably become law despite Governor Bashir's opposition. I've not spoken with the governor, but knowing his record of fairness, about equality and knowing his, his, his theology as he's expressed it publicly and his views on equality, his and his father's when he was governor, I suspect the governor will oppose this piece of legislation. But I, I don't think that the politics will be on his side. I think that it, the, the General Assembly will override it and it will become the law of the land as those types of legislations uh, will become the law of the land in many states. And um, I, I don't know how that's going to play out. I, I know that there's going to be some pushback, but I know this is a dangerous road that we're going down, not just in Kentucky, but all over the country. Not just these pieces of legislation, but voter suppression and uh, the failure to pass any type of, of, of meaningful voting rights legislation is all part of that larger pattern. And so we're staring down that abyss that Nietzsche warned us about. And that is a scary thought. There are two events that are being planned on January 11th and January 12th, in which people will come across uh, from the con Commonwealth to address these particular two pieces of legislation. And, and they will do so nonviolent. And they will do so in the spirit of redemptive love and nonviolent protest. They will not ransack the Capitol. Instead, they will bring justice to the larger conversation at the Capitol. And those two particular events need to happen. And I certainly wholeheartedly support, support both of those efforts. Okay, so just in the last few years, the United States has endured, as you pointed out, the impeachment of a president by the U.S. House of Representatives, even though his party in the U.S. Senate allowed him to stay in office. The U.S. has also endured an ins insurrection as you have already pointed out, had it succeeded, would have allowed the previous president to stay in office, even though that president lost the election. Mm -hmm. The country is currently enduring voter suppression laws, 
that have been implemented in 48 states, as well as laws passed in 14 states that impede the teaching of African-American and Native American history. Mm-hmm. Historians like Barry Craig, Ricky yes. Jones, and the philosopher Arnold Farr are worried that this fragile American representative democracy is in danger of collapsing. What does Professor Barry Craig think? The similar does Sinclair Lewis's book, It Can't Happen Here, speak to us, especially at this time in history? I've known Barry Craig a long time, and he's a good man, and he's he's accurate when he, he when he gives us this very prophetic warning about what's coming in America. It can happen here, and it is beginning to happen here. And I want to go back, and I want to clarify one thing with regard to this. These problems did not start when Donald Trump came down that escalator. There has always been a nativist, racist undercurrent within our political discourse. And at different times, it emerges, whether we're talking about the Know Nothing Party of the the 19th century, whether we're talking about the Dixiecrats of the 1940s, or the George Wallace movement of the 1960s. Each time those particular movements emerged, there was always a counter movement to counteract that type of political venom. What Donald Trump did in 2015, and as a candidate and as president, he certainly gave voice. But those sentiments were in the uh, in public discourse all along. He just gave it permission. And the sad thing about it is he exploited, I think, to a large extent, grievances that people had felt, economic anxieties, social anxieties, the changing demographic of the country, changing economic and political realities. And he galvanized a group of people who were angry and who were anxious about the way those trends were going. And he had set something absolutely poisonous in our politics. And so now we're starting to see, even though he lost the election and lost it fairly and squarely, We're starting to see the after effects of the Trump movement, such as voter suppression, even going back to Shelby versus Holder and the the Supreme Court decision that gutted the 65 Voting Rights Act and the attitudes of the states insofar as trying to marginalize and disenfranchise people that they don't want voting. This is the first time since Reconstruction that we have seen a systematic attempt to totally disenfranchise an entire population of people. Why? Because those people are going to be in the majority in 20 years from now. And so the process is now to take away their right to vote, to take away any type of of systems that allow them to be free participatory citizens in this democracy, with the result that you cripple their ability to govern and to rule. And so a lot of this is based upon those old fears of people of color, women, uh, racial minorities, sexual minorities, quote unquote, taking over. And so now we're seeing this come full circle. And I'm afraid that we're going to see sporadic acts of violence occur in the United States. I hope that that wouldn't be the case. I would hope that uh, we would come to as what President Lincoln said, the better, better angels of our nature and work through this as we've done many times before. But the media, social media, different leaders in the conservative movement, they're benefiting from the very caustic environment that's in place. And people are angry and people are ready to take up arms. And we saw this last year. 
And we, we were hearing the rumblings of domestic terrorism on the far right starting to emerge. And I don't know how this ends, but I know it's not going to end well. And I am afraid some people are going to get hurt in the process. And there's nothing, I feel completely helpless. Helpless. There's nothing I can do about it other than to sound the alarm and make people aware. But something dangerous is coming. And I, I don't know how all this plays out. One of the reasons why we have you on the show. Absolutely. <laughs> you publish an article entitled, quote, Deconstructing a Theory of a Theology of Defiance. Black yes. Preaching, the Politics of Racial Identity, end quote. Those mm -hmm. published in the, the Journal of Church and State. Tell That's us right. about that article. Well, as I mentioned earlier, it was a response to uh, Jeremiah Wright. It was a response to the Jeremiah Wright controversy because, as I said, I knew Dr. Wright. He was my pastor for five years. I felt that he had been given a bum rap. I felt that his, his preaching had been distorted by, here again, the conservative media leading the charge and making him out to be a monster and forcing then-Senator Obama to, to, to distance himself from his pastor, which I know that was not easy for Senator Obama, certainly President Obama, to have done. But politically, I, su I suspect he needed to do that. He needed to distance himself from those particular remarks. But if you go back and you listen to some of the things that Dr. Wright mentioned, Martin Luther King said some of the same things, especially in his later sermons, uh, especially the one that he was set to deliver before he was assassinated, why America will probably go to hell. That was one of his sermons he was going to give. And certainly his, his, his uh, uh, preachments against the war in Vietnam sounded eerily like Dr. Wright's uh, message. If you go back and look at the, listen to the Riverside sermon that Dr. King gave one year to the day he was assassinated in 1967, he called the United States government the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. Now, that particular comment, that, that lost Martin Luther King a lot of, a lot of support especially from the Johnson administration. But African-American preachers have oftentimes stood against a policies that they felt were repressive and oppressive. Whether we're talking about Harriet Tubman, whether we're talking about Sojourner Truth, whether we're talking about Vernon Johns, Henry McNeil Turner, William Garnett Henning, uh, several of those ministers have oftentimes used the apocalyptic and the prophetic and the eschatological musings of the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament in order to critique current national, domestic, and foreign policy. And so what Dr. Wright did and what he said was really nothing new. It is a continuation of that tradition within the African-American uh, hermeneutic. Okay, Brian. Let me introduce my uh, co-producer here. He just kind of, he just got on. This is Jamie McMillan. Mr. McMillan, how are you, sir? Well, Brian, black churches are often considered more political than white churches, especially in the South. Are there black churches in Western Kentucky, and and uh, if so, are they politically active? Well, I can speak to some of that. I happen to be an Episcopalian, but I grew up in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And there are several AME churches in Western Kentucky, Northwest Tennessee, that carry on that tradition of a prophetic critique of the larger society. In fact, the AME church that I grew up in was, was a byproduct of that going back to the 18th century. 
back in 1787, which uh, Richard Allen, of course, staged the walkout of, of um, the Black congregation at St. George's M.E. Church in Philadelphia in protest of their segregated and discriminatory practices. That's what led to the establishment of the Free African Society and the eventual establishment of the A.M.E. Church in the 19th century, with Allen, of course, becoming the first senior bishop uh, of that church. That, that tradition continues in di among different pastors in the area. There are several pastors that I know of, especially like Paris, Tennessee, Union City, Tennessee, and Paducah that are politically active and bring some of those critiques to some of their preachments. And they don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. They're involved in voter registration. They're involved in social uplift and raising questions about discrimination, violence, and marginalization. They are addressing those not just in their sermons, but in their own practical way of doing things. And so, yes, it may not be on the same level as, let's say, a Friendship West in Dallas, Texas, where Dr. Frederick uh, Haynes is, is pastor. It may not be on the same level of what Otis Moss is doing now at Trinity in Chicago. But they're, they're, that undercurrent is here in Western Kentucky, in Northwest Tennessee, and throughout the Purchase area. They're just not as outspoken as many of those other churches are. Now, you have published A Testament of Grace. Of Grace, right. Sermons and Reflections. Yes. Now, that's one of two books. Would you give us a, a brief summary of the Testament of Grace and Sermons? Oh, gladly, gladly. I'm often asked to deliver homilies and reflections at different events in different churches, uh, certainly the one I grew up in. Certainly uh, my own priests, whether it was uh, David Simmons, Matt Bradley, or, or, or Zeb Trelaw, have often asked me to give different uh, homilies in different church settings. And I've certainly been a guest speaker at, at enough uh, at Black History Month celebrations, MLK celebrations, and, and, and generally. And so what A Testament of Grace was, was a compilation and an editing of those homilies and reflections that I've given in different settings. I'm greatly influenced, and even when I give homilies now, greatly influenced by such scholars as Katie Geneva Cannon and James Cone and Walter Brueggemann, one of the top Hebrew Bible scholars in the United States. I love Dr. Brueggemann's work. And so you'll hear a lot of allusions to those particular theologians. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is another good example, which I, I use, that I use in, 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 uh, in my uh, homilies that I give. A lot of it, yes, is based upon the sacred text, but it's also used as a mirror to discuss what's going on in the larger society. Because my view is you can talk about heaven and hell all day long, and you can talk about the great exploits of Moses and Daniel and Jesus until the cows come home. But unless you're willing to use that to critique social systems, political systems and economic systems that grind under people, unless you're able to do that and shed light on that, then all of that is, is really smoke and mirrors. I think Bishop Tutu said it best. And we, of course, you know, we lost Bishop Tutu a few weeks ago, that if you are neutral on issues of injustice, then by default, you're already on the side of the oppressor. And Bishop Tutu was right. And that's the approach that I took with the Testament of Grace. So as you pointed out, you're, you have, are a follower of, of Walter Brueggemann, mm -hmm. uh, James Cone, Gardner J C. Taylor, George Gardner Pat C. Taylor, yes. 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 So these books and articles uh, demonstrate that you have a feel and it, this, this interview as well 
for the relationship between African-Americans uh, that African-Americans have for their church. Here in the South, Blacks are overwhelmingly Christian and Baptist. St. Stephen's Baptist Church here in Louisville, for example, pastored by the Reverend Kevin Cosby, is an African-American church and one of the largest Baptist churches in Kentucky. So why so many, why are there so many Black Christians and why Baptist? I don't know, because my wife's a Baptist. And several of my friends are Baptists. I don't know. I guess a lot of it, if you go back and you look at the cultural dynamics that occur in a lot of Baptist churches and even Pentecostal and charismatic churches, that those particular, the, the functions and the litany and the liturgy of those churches really reflect directly the culture of the larger African-American community, whether we're talking about in Black preaching. And of course, that's a great work by Henry uh, Mitchell that came out in the 1970s that explains the cultural dynamics of Black preaching, whether it's in that, whether it's in the larger culture of the, of, of the churches like Rally Sunday, Pew Rallies, Easter, Easter speeches, Christmas speeches, revivals, all of that has a very rich history behind that. And I think most African-Americans are drawn to that history and to that culture, which is very rich and very energetic and very participatory. I, I think that that's, that's what the appeal is. And as, as I said, I, I think that about sums it up insofar as why uh, many African-Americans are Protestant and uh, subscribe to Baptists and uh, other Pentecostal type movements, even though Baptists aren't Pentecostal, but still there's a particular draw there. I was in the Baptist seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in the, in the 70s, but up until then, they supported the civil rights and social movements. And, and, uh, but in 1980s, the, the seminary uh, moved uh, somewhat to the, to the right mm. after an internal conflict over theology and, and philosophy that the, the seminary underwent a dramatic philosophical and theological change. Most of the professors had supported social justice, were touched, were forced out of the out of the seminary. I'm sure. Didn't support the the new conservative theological philosophy. But most blacks seem to have stayed with their Baptist churches. Now, if you see that as true, now what would be the reason for that? You think? Well, let's, let's, let's go back and unpack the first thing that you mentioned. And that is the fact that uh, many mainline denominations, many mainline seminaries took that sudden turn to the right in the 1980s. Of course, you got to go back to the 1950s and go back to Jerry Falwell and the moral majority, Pat Robertson, Jim Baker, and so forth, and understand why that particular movement within Protestantism came about. It was a reaction to changes in the society that a lot of those folks in those Christian movements viewed as very dangerous, that the society was becoming a little bit too liberal, that the society was becoming a little bit too permissive, especially on issues with regard to sex, sexuality, and what they believed as secular humanism. There was a belief that secular humanism was leading to the decline of the American system. You also have to couch this against the whole larger Cold War of the 1950s and 60s that communism was the threat to our way of life, godless communism as it was described then. And so uh, uh, that had a particular resonance among many social conservatives within the church, but not necessarily a lot of Black folks. Now, you do have some Black conservatives. 
I know quite a few. Some of them are in my family and they subscribe to Falwell. They subscribed to Pat Robertson. They su subscribed to Jimmy Swaggart and all those particular folks, which, which brings out a particular point here that the African-American church and the African-American community is not a monolith, but not everybody thinks alike. And I guess that's a good thing insofar as enhancing dialogue, but understand that there are some folks who believe Blacks and whites who believe that the society is becoming a little bit too permissive, a little bit too liberal, and this is going to lead to the nation going astray. And there are others who, who, who have an opposite view. Now, I happen to have that opposite view that you mentioned Gardner C. Taylor. Gardner C. Taylor was fond of saying uh, that the greatest word out of John 3.16 is whosoever. And so I, I, my personal theology subscribes to a whosoever type of faith and a whosoever type of hermeneutic, that whoever you are, whatever background that you come from, that God loves you unconditionally. There are no big eyes and little U's in the larger functioning of global society. They were all on equal footing with the divine. But I have relatives and I have friends who say, well, you're, you're encouraging liberalism, you're encouraging sin, you're encouraging radical ideas, which hopefully will be my next book, Radical Ideas. But just, just know that the church itself is not a monolith and that you do have that conservative as well as that progressive strain within African-American Christianity. So you also penned an article, Brian Clarity, titled, quote, Impeaching Richard Nixon. Yes. Tennessee Congressman Ed Jones, Watergate and the Politics of Triangulation, mm -hmm. 1973 to 74, end quote. What I remember from the congressional Watergate trials is that Republicans in both houses of Congress decided that even though Richard Nixon was a Republican, he had to go. Nixon right. had decided not to resign. The Senate, had Nixon decided not to resign, the Senate would have removed him from office. Well, Goldwater time, told him so as such, yes. Yes. And so that fact demonstrates that the Republicans in those days put mm -hmm. principle over party politics. That's right. That's right. But today, Republicans in both the House and the Senate had decided to stick with the former president, even though people from uh, his own administration provided evidence that he was guilty of treason and that he encouraged the January 6th insurrection. Have today's House and Senate Republicans put politics ahead of principle? If yes, so, and that is scary. Yeah. What does that mean for the country? To go back to what you mentioned earlier, one of the things that hurt Richard Nixon in his, his defense of executive privilege and saying that he couldn't turn over the tapes, one of the things that hurt him was when the Supreme Court came out and said, no, you cannot keep those tapes. You have to turn them over to the judge. And we actually heard just how deep Nixon was involved in the cover-up. You had principal Republicans like Barry Goldwater, who, you know, would have normally stuck with the Republican president, but they saw a larger issue involved. And so Goldwater and the delegation that he led to the to the Nixon White House said, you know, you know, this is the law. This is our system of government. This is the rule of law. And no man, no president is above that. And if you do not resign and you are impeached, then we will vote with the Democrats to have you removed from office. Now, that took guts on, on, on Goldwater's part. And there was once a time that Democrats and Republicans could come together on the larger question of the American creed and the rule of law, that no institution, no person is above the law, and that the Constitution is the central government document of the United States and not a political party pl pl platform and neither is a particular leader. 
what we have now, with a few exceptions, we have a Republican Party that was willing to co-sign everything Donald Trump had done, whether it was not just the Russia investigation, but now the insurrection. Now, you have some exceptions. You have Adam Kinzinger, who's who's taken a lot of heat, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, and I understand that Vice President Cheney was on the floor of the House with her uh, today, and I'm glad that the Vice President Cheney stood with his daughter. I'm not generally a fan of Dick Cheney's, but Dick Cheney uh, stood with his daughter and stood for the principles that she espoused in opposing Trumpism during the administration. Certainly Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski and others sounded the alarms. And I know that Senator Romney, who I did not vote for in 2012, Senator Romney voted to remove President Trump from office. And so you do have principled Republicans who are willing to stand up. And I'll go you one further. People like George Will and Bill Kristol and David Frum, who are principled conservatives, have looked at what has happened over the last six years with great alarm. And this is one of the things that's motivated the Lincoln Project. And in the interest of full disclosure, gentlemen, in the 1990s, I was a conservative. I was a Salvatore Fellow with the Heritage Foundation in the 1990s. And I subscribe to, to the tenets of American conservatism. Now, luckily, I saw the light. But I suspect that if I had stayed with the Republican Party, if I'd stayed with conservatism, I would be a vocal supporter of the Lincoln Project. There are still some conservatives and Republicans out there who who did not drink the Kool-Aid. Sadly, within the Republican congressional leadership, there are many who did, including our own Senator Mitch McConnell. And I know Senator McConnell's not big on the president. I know that there's some, some animosity between them, but Senator McConnell has not come out, uh, radically condemned everything that's happened over the last few years, leadership that he really should have provided and did not. So that leadership that, that he should have provided but did not, was that a result of the political situation, the political impact that Donald Trump has carried with him to this date? Yes. Now, M- Senator McConnell won re-election nearly two years ago, and it wasn't even close. He beat Amy McGrath quite soundly. And even though he was opposed to a lot of th- the things that the president has, has done, and as I said there, I've understood there's some personal animosity between them. Mitch McConnell did not need Donald Trump to get re-elected, okay? But the sad thing about it is, if you are a Republican and you criticize President Trump in any meaningful way, you will get death threats, you will get harassed harassment, you will get primary. It will harm your relationship with your colleagues. And if I'm a member of Congress, and I've tried to analyze this personally and analytically, I've tried to to understand the, the meaning behind this. If I'm a Republican member of Congress, and I say something critical of Trumpism in the Trump administration, I'm going to think about my family. I'm going to think about my own safety, my own security, and my own political effectiveness upon the Hill. Now, I know that sounds like a cop out, in the abstract, it is, but I understand the fear that many of these Republicans have. I have been hearing for years that there were a lot of people in 2016, a lot of congressional Republicans who were praying that Donald Trump would not be the nominee, but he got the nomination and he has a huge following within the Republican base. And so a lot of those folks chose political expediency over principle, but I kind of see why that happened. I don't like it, but I understand why it happened the way it did. Okay. Dr. Cardi, uh, we have just a few minutes left. One final question. Okay. Uh, what books 
articles and other media would you recommend to our listeners who are interested in African-American history, the fragility of the U.S. bureaucracy as you talked about today, or inequities built into the American eco-political system, rooted in nonviolence, environmentalism, social justice, and grassroots democracy. And do would you give us a, <laughs> what do you think the solutions are to some of those things? Well, uh, you, you, you mentioned books and me and my, my wife had this conversation today because I was thinking about ordering another one. And she said, you have too many books. You don't know what to do with the books that you have. And it, they are crowding the living room and they are crowding the home office. And so she's got a very legitimate point there. And they're, and they're spilling over in my office at the university. Uh, I would look at this recent work that came out a few years ago by Henry Louis Gates, who is a prominent historian at Harvard University. We call him Skip Gates, and he's, he's one of the best. Uh, the w- recent work that came out that was made into a documentary series on PBS a few years ago called Stony the Road. That is a very good primer into questions with regard to slavery, Jim Crow, the Nadir of race relations and so forth into the 20th century. That's one work. Uh, The other work I would recommend is one that's come out recently by Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, and that's called Entertaining Race. Now, I've been familiar with Mike Mike Dyson's work for a long time. Um, His works on Tupac have have been well-received on King, on um, his critiques of Bill Cosby, uh, even before the scandals and all that. Uh, Dr. Dyson has been very much engaged in some of those larger questions with regard to social inequity. Read Entertaining Race, but I would say the entire corpus of Dyson's work is very stellar. Certainly Cornell West is in someone else I would recommend. Uh, Cornell West, um, Democracy Matters, Race Matters, uh, some of his earlier writings on Herbert Marcuse and, and, and different other uh, uh, academicians and so forth, Dr. West's work. I would read uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Um, she's, she's done a certainly remarkable job of that, uh, of explaining some of those inequities and so forth. Some of the writings of the late great Bell Hooks, whom we lost recently. Uh, Salvation is one particular work that I would recommend by Bell Hooks. Um, there's just so many different authors and writers out there that this, the market is just flooded with all of these great writers. And I would just say to your listeners, sample them all. But also, too, if you want to be practical, sample some of the writings on the other side of the political spectrum. Read Tucker Carlson's book. Read Sean Hannity's works. Um, read some basic American conservative ideas, going back to Goldwater, Conscience of a Conservative. Go back and look at some of the works of Irving Kristol and uh, Russell Kirk and Leo Strauss. Make sure that you have a well-rounded list of readings so that you don't get caught in a bubble and so that you can also understand what the other side is trying to say. That, that's very, very helpful. And the solution is, I think, and, and I may be reaching for straws here. We still need to listen to each other. And we're not doing that in the society. We're reacting. We react. I know I've been guilty of that. We react on social media. We're not listening to each other. 
We're not trying to find that common ground that we used to have a long time ago. Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill fought like cats and dogs in the public, but they were very close friends. Speaker O'Neill went to Reagan's bedside after he had been shot. They had regular conversations and meals and drinks together. And they were on two totally different sides of the political spectrum. Somehow we've got to get that back. I don't know how it's going to happen, but somehow we've got to find that middle ground again. Because if we don't, American democracy and the American system as we know it, we're on life support as it is. And I fear what will happen if we do not find that commonality and that common ground. And I'm certainly willing to do whatever I need to do as an academician and someone in the public square to try to bridge some of those gaps because I don't want my country to fall into chaos. I don't wanna see American democracy go away. I don't wanna see autocracy. And I certainly don't want to see Americans hurting each other. And if I can be helpful in any way to make sure that that doesn't happen, sign me up. I think, uh, I think you hit on something that is something that brings respect. Um, listen, listening to people tends to tell them you respect them. And my wife tells me that. You respect them even though you disagree. And disagreement is a good thing. It's a great thing. Yeah. But, but we can disagree without being disagreeable. And I think over the last 10 years, we've chosen that disagreeable path. And it, it's, it's not good for democracy. It's not good for America. It's not good for our standing in the world. And unless we are willing to reverse course, I don't want to know what's, what's coming down the pike. I'm very nervous. As I said, I, I predict that there are going to be some acts of violence. I wish that weren't true, but the, the political environment is just too heated right now. and I'm, I'm terrified. So, folks, we're out of time. Our conversation today has been with Dr. Brian Clarity. We want to thank Dr. Clarity for joining us uh, as we explore more solutions to violence. We also want to thank our radio audience for joining us here on WFMP Radio, the Solutions to Violence program featuring Dr. Brian Clarity will be rebroadcast January 11th and 12th. You can listen to Solutions of Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. Solutions of Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. This program featuring Brian Clarity will be placed in our archives January 12th. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Brian Clarity. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Dr. Clarity, you can reach us with the following email, solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Wishing you and yours a safe and peaceful holiday and first of the new year. Thanks very much.